Go ahead and open up in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 10. Guys, we have two more weeks left of Nehemiah. You've done it. Uh, pat yourself on the back. This has been good. I actually, I think when we started this series, I, I had shared with you guys how I had thought like this was going to be like, oh my goodness, Nehemiah, what are we thinking as a new church doing this crazy Old Testament book in the Bible? But I don't know about you guys, it has been so fruitful, if nothing else, but to see God's continued faithfulness throughout all of history. It's been a joy. Uh, and so while you turning to Nehemiah chapter 10. I just want to give you a brief like all up on the same speed, get everyone caught up together. So God has led this guy Nehemiah and then his, his people, the people of God, the Israelites, into a new season of their existence. They're in this period of life where God is renewing them. He's restoring them. They're obeying again and they're faithful again to their end of the covenant. And they're seeing the fruit of their relationship with God again. After 140 some odd years in exile, they're starting to see the fruit of this relationship again. And as God is restoring his people, he's restoring their identity and their practice of being God's people. The book of Nehemiah is about God's people finding their identity in him and nothing else. Well, at the same time, we are reading this book knowing that apart from Jesus Christ, that story is incomplete. And we'll find that in two weeks as we end this book, that they end, in a sense, kind of where they started, disobeying again. And we're left with this longing for something more. And we're left with this longing for Jesus to make it right. So Nehemiah's goal from the beginning has been twofold. And so the first half of the book has been this mission to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem, the wall around the city. And that, as you guys know, represents a whole lot more, especially in this time and place. It represents a national identity. It represents some safety, some security, and kind of the rebuilding of this people and recognition that God is with them again. But that only goes till about chapter six, and we have the rest of this book left. And so we see his underlying theme, and then what is really highlighted starting in chapter seven and beyond is to reestablish Israel as the people of God, right? As the covenant people of God who honor and obey and are faithful to their God, Yahweh. And that's the part of the story that we're in right now, in this moment where they're kind of renewing their relationship. And so if you've ever had a moment or a period of time or a season in life where there's been a dryness, where you felt far from God, or maybe where you haven't known God, and you kind of can remember that particular season. And then there's this like moment where you encounter the grace of Jesus. And it just seems like one thing is happening after another. You're increasing your worship of him. You're, you're praying more. You're diving into the scripture more. You're learning more about him. And, and, that's, and it just feels like a refreshing, like a breath of fresh air in your lungs. And that's sort of what's happening here in Nehemiah. They've been in exile. Their nation is in shambles. Their city is in shambles. And they're in this moment of like a spiritual revival as a nation where there's this freshness to their relationship with God. So imagine just for a moment to help put, our, put ourselves in their shoes. Imagine just for a moment you're an Israelite during the time of, of Nehemiah. You spent the last two months building walls and gates and doors around the city of Jerusalem under the constant threat of attack from your enemies. Right, you have to build with one hand and have your sword on your side and be ready to go at a moment's notice to defend yourself in case you get like jumped from a neighboring nation. So they were not only building, but they were all active defenders of the city. 
You had to deal with betrayal and disunity from inside your own people. You're hot, you're sweaty, you're tired, you're afraid. And although God has been gracious to you in the long story of your people, he's delivered you out of Egypt, he's brought you to the promised land, he's fended off attacks from the enemy for you, you know you are in exile because you as a people have been unfaithful to God. You've been worshiping other gods, you've turned away from him, and that's why you're in exile. But something new is happening with your family, with your people. God is speaking to you guys again. He's restoring you. You've read aloud God's word, heard sermons about uh, and from the law about God. You're worshiping him, confessing and repenting of your sins and the sins of your past generations and fathers. And you're starting to live out the law again. You're starting to live out God's word again. And God is giving you another chance. And so there's like almost a pick-me-up or like a weight off the shoulders in this newness of life. He hasn't abandoned you and your people He's continually sought after you and desired that you come back to him. And he's showing you grace and mercy by restoring your identity and by restoring the practice and living out what it means to be God's people. That's where we are in the story. And so the question we might be faced with if we were in their shoes is how are we going to do this different this time? Right? We know really well the story of our forefathers and the story of God. Last week, they literally prayed the entire story of God. They are very well aware of their deficiencies and their sins, their mess-ups, their baggage. And so they must be thinking, how are we going to do this differently this time? And so maybe if you're thinking back in your own life to maybe a season of of dryness or a season where you felt far from God, when you kind of have that fresh wind in your lungs, you're thinking, how am I going to do it different this time? How am I going to respond to God's grace in a way that sticks, in a way that actually affects real change? So during this great spiritual revival and recommitment to their God that was in chapters 8 and 9, And so chapters 8, 9, and 10 are all sort of mashed together in this one big moment or one big event or, um, yeah, even season for this people. And there were some specific moments that were significant to their identity and their lives. And first, uh, the first moment that was significant was the scriptures were regarded as their foundation for their lives again. So they had not been living in light or built on the foundation of God's revealed voice, God's revealed will, his revealed story, what they, what they had as the law. The first five books of the Bible, some various prophets and Psalms and Proverbs along the way, they had abandoned that. And what's significant is they're placing their lives on that foundation again. Second thing that is significant is they responded to the word of God. Right? It was not only with intellectual comprehension, where they were understanding what the word of God was actually saying, but it was with a passionate, worshipful response and then a purposeful life change, a decision to live differently or to live in light of who God is again. Thirdly, they humbly confessed and repented of sin. Not only their sin, but the sin of everyone who'd gone before them. Sort of like this wiping the slate clean and saying, we're ready to start afresh with you. And finally, in these three chapters, this one kind of movement within the book, we see that part of the reestablishment of their identity as God's people 
was a written covenant to each other and to God. That's what chapter 10 is. So they sit under the word, they understand it, they respond to it by worshiping him, by understanding it, by confessing, repenting, by living out some of the feasts that they, they encountered in the law. So they're starting to live like God's people again. And then there's this moment where they have to like put it on paper and say this, we're gonna commit to living differently because of what God you have done. And so in Nehemiah 9 verse 38, at the very end of the prayer that we read last week, They say, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. That's how chapter nine leaves off. So they do this whole prayer and confession and repentance. And at the very end, they say, we're gonna make a document, a covenant in writing committing to what we will do. And so what I love about this chapter, chapter 10, is it once again reinforces a recurring theme that we've seen throughout the book that this, just, this isn't just Nehemiah's story. And so because the book is named after him, we can sometimes make it about him. It isn't just Ezra's story who is like trying to instigate this spiritual revival and bring people back to the word. It isn't even just about the priests or the Levites or the leaders of the household. One of the things that we've seen throughout Nehemiah is it's the entire family of God engaging and participating in. And specifically, we've seen that in a couple of moments where they literally list the names of people who did stuff, right? And that's not unimportant. It's odd when we encounter it, right? When they list the people of who built what and what perfumer was working on what gate and what governor was working on what door. And and it seems really confusing why it's here, but it's to let us know that everybody matters, that the people of God matter. It isn't just about a super Christian. It isn't just about a spiritual leader. It isn't just about those who are in the know with the law. It is about the entire people of God coming once again under the authority of himself. And honestly, that's one of the things I've loved about this church's story. It isn't just my thing. It isn't just Sherry and I's thing. It's been, it feels like from day one, a team effort all across the board. And while very similar to Nehemiah, it may have started with some like, with something God was brewing and Sherry and I and kind of some initial vision and like kind of longings of where to go, but that quickly turned into a large group of people joining in together. There's a whole community of people here that are serving, giving, participating, advancing what God is doing here. When God is moving, when he's advancing his kingdom, he draws other people into the story. It never just stays with one person or a small crew of people. God's story is incredibly inclusive. And as he moves his mission forward, proclaiming his kingdom and using people to do that, he's drawing other people into the story. Those who signed this particular covenant, it lists a few different types of people. They were priests, Levites, some heads of of key families and other leaders. But at the very end, we sort of had this catch-all that it's and everybody else, right? There were some people worth mentioning and worth highlighting in chapter 10. But the way it ends is just that everybody signed this covenant. So look at uh, chapter 10, verse 1. We're going to do some more names here this morning, so bear with me. I think this is the last time we have to read the long list of names. So chapter 10, verse 1, on the seals are the names of Nehemiah, the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, 
Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pasher, Amariah, Malkijah, Hattush, Shebaniah, Maluk, Haram, Merimoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Ginnathon, Baruch, Meshulam, Abijah, Majimin, Maziah, Bilgiah, Shemaiah, these are the priests. And the Levites, Jeshua, the son of Azaniah, Benui, the sons of Henadad and Cadmiel, and the brothers, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Kalida, Peliah, Hanan, Mekah, Rahab, Hashabiah, Zachar, Sherebiah, uh, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Benai, Beniu, the chiefs of the people, Perush, Pehath, Moab, Elam, Zatu, Benai, Benui, Az- Azgad, Bibai, Adonai, Adonijah, Bigvi, Adin, Atter, Hezekiah, Azur, Hodiah, Hashum, Baziah, Hareph, Anathoth, Nebai, Magpiash, Meshulam, Hezer, Meshabazel, Zaduk, Jedua, Pelatia, Hanan, Aniah, Hoshea, Hananiah, Hashub, Halohesh, Pilha, Shobek, Raham, Hashbaniah, Messiah, Ahiah, Hanan, Anan, Maluk, Harem, Benai. And the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. So we have some people highlighted. But at the very end, thank you, well done. I did practice those yesterday. <laughs> we have some people highlighted, but, uh, but in essence, when we get to verse 28 and 29, they just say, and everybody else who's a part of this family, right? The story that God is writing here is inclusive of everyone who's a part of this nation. So every Hebrew is in on this. Not, not one person was exempt from the story that God was writing. This wasn't just for the leadership, for the important people, or even just the people named here. This was for the whole family of God. And I actually love that this list of names, that this text kind of falls on the day where we're just affirming and celebrating those who are committing to live life together here as a church. It was not planned at all, but I love how the Holy Spirit does stuff like that. Throughout scripture, we see God advancing his mission and kingdom through communities of people, binding themselves to him and each other. And it's a beautiful picture of how God works. So we have all these names, all the people in the nation of Israel committing to something, right? This written covenant, what is in the covenant? And that picks up in the second half of verse 29. There were some specific things that they were committing to. Now, This doesn't mean that they were abandoning kind of every other way of living that God had set out before them. It just means there are things in this particular time that they needed to verbalize and deal with. So think of it like a wedding ceremony. Brian was just telling me he was at a wedding yesterday uh, and it's summertime, which means there are weddings coming up. And I was just thinking about our wedding ceremony, uh, which is almost three years ago now, uh, and was just thinking like, okay, we made vows to each other. Vows are a really common part of, of wedding ceremonies, right? Where you say, this is, these are the things I'm gonna do in sickness and in health, the whole nine yards. And I was thinking, man, those vows aren't the only thing that we're committing to, Right? Like there's nothing in those vows about having children, but you know, we have Calvin, another one on the way. And so there has to be more to that covenant, to that relationship than just the expressed things that you're verbalizing in that moment. And it's a similar picture we have here. 
right? They're committing to God and all that, that it means, but there are a few specific things that are worth verbalizing and dealing with. Now, I don't know why we only have conjecture, but as we're looking at these specific things that they committed to, it must be because this was the, the burning passion of things they have missed out on in the past. And so in their 140 years in exile, living in Persia, these are maybe the things that they felt strongly convicted about. They say, we need to deal with these head on. So there are four of them specifically that they focus in on that is worth drawing some attention to. And the first is in that second half of verse 29, where they join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. Right, and so the first thing that they are committing to in this covenant is they're saying, we will obey scripture. We will know scripture, we will read it, we will talk about it, we will digest it, we will consider it, and we will live it out. We've already seen this in chapters eight and nine. This is kind of the the foundation for their change in living is encountering the word and the law of God. And we find out this is the utmost important to them. It's the first thing they say in the covenant. It's sort of like the blanket statement, like first things first, we are coming back to living the way you want us to live. But it's more than that because the Hebrews know this is how God has revealed himself. This is the voice of the Lord. And he's done some miraculous and amazing things throughout the history of the Israelites, but this is what they have as their firm foundation. This is, how, this is who God is. It's his story. It's, it's how they should live in light of who God is. And this will be a thing that, that guides and dictates their life, and so they want to come back to hearing from the Lord. And just a side note, if you want to hear from the Lord, if you've ever prayed that prayer and just say, Lord, I just want to hear you, and maybe we're expecting something audible or we're expecting like this miraculous thing, and that stuff is incredible and it absolutely happens and it's happened to me, but most of the time, if you want to know what the Lord says, it's here in the Bible. If you want to know the Lord's calling for your life, read the Bible. If you want to know how he thinks you should live in light of who he is, it's in the Bible. The Hebrews knew this. They knew this. And so when they were recommitting themselves back to God, they said, first things first, we want to commit ourselves to understanding, to knowing who God is, knowing his story, how much he's loved us. And to do that, we go back to scripture. And that's the foundation for the rest of this covenant that they have. And this is important for them, that they come back to the law of the Lord. And when we use the word law, that usually carries some weird and and maybe negative connotations with us. And as we saw in their prayer last week, this was an incredibly positive thing. His commandments, his statutes, him telling how they should live in this world was a good thing because it would not only cause them to flourish, but it would give them a purpose and identity here on earth. So you don't have to turn there. It's going to be behind me. But look at Exodus chapter 19. When the Lord is is talking to Moses and giving the law to the people, he says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Right, he's mentioning their deliverance out of slavery from, from Egypt. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice 
and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And so the law was given to them to flourish, to live in light of who God is and live the way he wanted them to live. Because the whole earth is the Lord's and if we're his treasured possessions, that's the best way to live is to live in light of that, in that relationship. But in verse six, he also gives them a job, a mandate to fulfill. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So a kingdom of priests, which meant it was their job to display God to the rest of the world. It was their job to live in such a way that they would see how Israel was living and winning battles and living off the land and treating each other and treating foreigners and to say, why are you living differently? Where do you get this power from? Why do you treat people the way you treat people? How are you winning all these battles when your army is in inferior? And it was their job to point back to Yahweh. It was their job to live on earth in such a way that would direct people back to God. That's why this is so important to them. So paramount to being God's people is obeying and living under his word. This is how we thrive and this is how we live out the identity God has graciously given to us. The second thing, that's the first big thing. The second thing in verse 30 They write in the covenant, we will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And there's a lot happening in this one particular verse and about marrying from different cultures and and this and that. But the big picture of that verse is there's a subtle theme that's also happening throughout the book of Nehemiah that God is restoring families, right? It's not just the big family of God, but he's restoring clans and individual families. He's bringing redemption to them. He's healing them. He's giving them new purpose. One of the early setbacks to building the wall was the Hebrews. If you guys remember this in in chapter five, was the Hebrews, right, exacting high interest from each other and kind of causing others to go into debt. And they had to sell their own sons and daughters off into slavery just to pay for the vineyards and the lands and to pay the taxes. Look at Nehemiah 5 verse 5. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it for the other men have our fields and our vineyards. So it seems like there's some brokenness around these families that is happening. They're having to sell their kids into slavery. And that came as part of this exile existence. But part of God's restoration plan for his people is not just for the whole people, but for individual families as well. Look at this in Nehemiah 8, uh, verse 13. On the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra, the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. So what we have is fathers of families coming for Bible studies to grow in their knowledge and understanding of who God is so they could lead their families well. This is one of the very first thing that happens as a result of finishing the wall and this recommitment to God is God is getting families back in order. He's demonstrating his faithfulness and goodness by bringing together families and giving them good godly leadership. God sets up his way, his creation in a certain way to flourish. 
And part of that flourishing is families being healed and coming under godly leadership. And so this is an important marker in their covenant is they are committed to living in light of what God has restored. That's the second thing. The third thing is in verse 31. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. So another recurring theme. So I love how this commitment in chapter 10 is sort of a summary of these things that have been happening and almost the culmination of what God has been stirring in his people from the very beginning of this book. We saw it in chapter 8 through, through worship postures, through celebrating, rejoicing, the feast of the booths, and in chapter 9 through confession and, reassure, and, and repentance. And here in chapter 10, the Hebrews start to recapture the worship of God through keeping the Sabbath. And so the third thing they are committing to is worshiping God. This was a big issue for the Israelite people. They kept worshiping other things. They kept worshiping other idols, other gods. They kept directing their attention, their affection, their worth, their value from other things other than God. And one of the things that God says to his people throughout history with the Israelites is find your satisfaction in me. Find your power in me. Find your identity in me. And they continue to waver off that course and to look for those things elsewhere. And so part of this recommitment, this written covenant they make, is to worship God. This is central to the life of a believer, to say that I will worship God and nothing else. I will let him be the king of my life, and he deserves the worthy and the honor and the praise and everything. My wife does not deserve that place in my life. My kids do not deserve that place in my life. My job does not deserve that place in my life. Christ and Christ alone deserves that place in my life. And the people of God recognize this and say, we will commit to worshiping you for going worship of other things. That's the third. The fourth finishes out this particular chapter. And they say, we will give generously. Giving generously is the final part of their covenant to God and to each other. So read with me starting in verse 32. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offerings, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God, according to our Father's houses, at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord." Also to bring to the house of God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks. And to bring the first of all our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God. And to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor." 
And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. So I don't know if you got lost in the reading of all these different ways they're going to give, but the big idea is found in that very last verse. We will not neglect the house of our God. And the way this text ends gives us the primary concern of the people was the worship of God. This was at the heart of their national life and identity. They would worship God in every area of life, in their finances, in their families, how they approached scripture, in their passionate and intellectual and purposeful responses to encountering God. They would worship him in all of these different ways. So Nehemiah 8 9 and 10 is this one big, beautiful scene of God's people coming back to him. This spiritual revival, this refreshing that happens and what he's done, how amazing it is and how truly his ways are better than our ways. They confess their sins and the sins of their fathers and now respond to God's grace and turn back to him, making these promises to live differently. The people of God came together. They saw their deficiencies or specific areas they needed to speak into and they highlighted those four, that they're gonna obey scripture. They're gonna lead their families well. They're gonna worship God and they're gonna give generously. These are the areas they're putting the spotlight on and saying, watch us, this is how we're gonna live. And those are, of course, great spaces for us to press into if we're not pressing into those. But the reality is, what I want us to focus in on is we can never perfectly live out those four things that we see in Nehemiah. And if we could live them out perfectly, they would never grant us salvation or acceptance from God. And so what I want us to look at in this particular chapter is the fact that this was a response to the grace of God, not so that they could receive grace from God. When we encounter a text like this, it's really easy for us to say, oh, these are four things. I'm gonna check these off in my life. I'm gonna give a little bit more. I'm gonna make sure I like raise my hands a little bit in worship or like read scripture a little bit more throughout the week. And not that those things are bad, but I want you to see the posture from which they're coming. They have experienced the goodness and the faithfulness and the grace of God. And they're responding to that. As we look at our own lives, how are we responding to the grace of God? Fixed and secure in our identity, not trying to achieve our identity. God's people throughout Nehemiah were willing to make what seems like great personal sacrifice so that they can live in obedience to God and see him made known to all the other nations that are living around them. And in doing so, they were demonstrating through their, li- through their like, lived lives differently, they're demonstrating that they serve a God who provides for them, who sustains them, who strengthens them, and has been faithful and consistent with them. This isn't legalism, it isn't moralism, it isn't kind of instructing a way of life so that you'll become a better person. This isn't so that God will love us or accept us, but this is because he has already loved and accepted us. And this is like our our knee-jerk response. 
And I almost, I'm trying to picture this particular scene in these chapters in my mind after just kind of seeing what God has done. He's built the wall. He's giving them an identity again. He's blessing them again. They're coming under the word. They're worshiping again. And there's almost like, ah, what can we do to like show how grateful and how thankful we are for all that God has given us? So we have to write something down. What are we going to say? I don't know. Let's read scripture again. Let's obey scripture again. Let's, let's worship him. We're going to lead our families better. And there's almost this sense in like, they're so overfilled with joy and thankfulness for what God has done. They're thinking of all these ways that they can show that to the world. What they're doing is they're starting to reclaim that identity God gave them in Exodus 19. They will be priesthood to the nations. They will be God tre- God's treasured possessions. They will look different because of the God who strengthens them. The Hebrew people had many deficiencies, er, these areas to grow in, and they knew they needed to rely on God and his faithfulness to provide a way for them. And he did. And they're celebrating now. And so for us, we need to marinate in the work of Jesus The work of Jesus on the cross to provide perfect grace for us. Perfect grace that was foreshadowed in the book of Nehemiah. Because like I said earlier, we're going to come to the end and they still are not getting it. There's still something left lacking. And so for us as believers, these are the moments we celebrate the perfect grace that has come to us from Jesus Christ so that we do not need to earn anything from God. But things like we read in Nehemiah chapter 10 are our worshipful responses to who he is. So the bottom line is when we realize who God is and all he's done, it changes our life. Like if nothing else, that's the big idea from these last three chapters in Nehemiah, that as they uncover the story of God, it changes them. And that's, I think, where I want us to sit in this morning just for a moment. So I'm going to invite Ryan and and Bob and Megan. They're going to lead us in some more worship. And as they're getting set up, I'm going to read something over you. Um, And I think what we need to do is marinate in, in, in one particular thing. Is to really leave with a deep understanding of who we are in Christ and let that inform how we live. Like what I, what I would hate to happen is if you walk out of here going here, well, all right, if I want God to love me, I got to like read my Bible more or I got to give a little bit more or any of those things. What I desperately want each of you to walk out with is a deep understanding of who God is, what he's done to bring you into his family and then to consider what is life? What does this new life look like? How's God wired me? What are the opportunities he's given me? How's God shaped my life to respond to his grace and show his grace to other people? And so what I want to do is I want to read a couple of different passages from the book of Ephesians. I love Ephesians. It is just riddled with statements about our identity in Christ. And what's really interesting about the book of Ephesians is Paul takes three and a half, four chapters to talk about who we are before he ever gets to how we should live in light of that. Like there is a saturation in our identity in Christ that happens before we kind of commit or volitionally choose to live anyway. So we're gonna do that. Uh, Go ahead and stand as I read this stuff. I'm gonna read like four passages from Ephesians 2 and then Ephesians 4. And they're gonna be behind me. Yeah, perfect. Thanks, Steve. We're gonna start in chapter 2. And we're gonna start in verse 4. But God, 
being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I'm gonna go down to verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I'm going to skip to chapter 4, starting in verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner from the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I'm going to skip down to verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to, every, uh, to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ." assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Fathers, we just take a moment to soak in that, to remember all you've done to bring us into your family, to remember who you say we are. We may not feel like it, but we are fellow saints in your kingdom. But God, rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, gives us a new identity. And Father, would you help us? Would you show us what it looks like to live a life worthy of this calling to which we've been called? Show us what it looks like to put off the old self and to put on the new self. And all throughout our days, would you remind us that the new self is our true identity? that when we go back to old ways of living, we're living outside of who we're designed 
to be. So God, our response to you because of your goodness, your faithfulness, your grace to us is a life worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Father, show us what that looks like. Protect us from thoughts that being a good person or achieving more or showing up at church more will somehow make you love us more. It doesn't. Remind us of your inexhaustible love, your inexhaustible grace and mercy and forgiveness. And it's in that reality that we worship you and respond to you, to your word, to who you said we are and to who you are. And as we worship, as we take communion, as we give, as we do these different things, God, would you, would you uh, just refuel our passion for you? Would you remind us of all that has been done to save us? And would we worship with gladness and joy? Would we sing praises and thanksgiving? God, would you increase our worship this morning? And in the power of Christ Jesus and the Spirit dwelling inside of us, we say amen.